Welcome to the Christian History Podcast, Chapter 6, Episode 37. Last week, I worked through child sacrifice as found in the Old Testament, covering this subject because Moses warned the Israelites against it in Deuteronomy 22. This week, I'm continuing working through the book and covering what remains of the people, places, and things. And with that, let's get started. Chapter 22 outlines various rules and regulations. Don't let your neighbor's ox or sheep stray. Put parapets on the roofs of your new houses. No clothes made with a blend of wool and linen. Cloaks have to have tassels on their four corners. These were really all over the place. Then there were a magnitude of rules concerning the relations between men and women. You can read those on your own. Overall, though, there were no new people, places, or things introduced in the chapter. So I'm moving on. Chapter 23 continues this litany of rules, beginning with who can, actually really who cannot, be admitted into the assembly of the Lord. In the middle of these rules is a reference to the Ammonites and the Moabites, and how they treated the Israelites during the wandering. From the text, No Ammonite or Moabite shall be admitted to the assembly of the Lord, even to the tenth generation. None of their descendants shall be admitted to the assembly of the Lord, because they did not meet you with food and water on your journey out of Egypt, and because they hired against you Balaam, son of Baor, from Pether of Mesopotamia, to curse you. Yet the Lord your God refused to heed Balaam. The Lord your God turned the curse into a blessing for you because the Lord your God loved you. You shall never promote their welfare or their prosperity as long as you live. Then, two groups are given a reprieve along with the reason why. You shall not abhor any of the Edomites, for they are your kin. You shall not abhor any of the Egyptians, because you are an alien residing in their land. The children of the third generation that are born to them may be admitted to the assembly of the Lord. The Egyptian reference is surprising because the Israelites, according to Exodus 1, were oppressed by the Egyptians with forced labor. But Moses certainly had his reasons, and that was good enough for the Israelites. The chapter continues with even more rules, this time concerning sanitary practices to the point of instructions on how to deal with when they had to relieve themselves while they were encamped. This, too, was surprising, as the Israelites had been wandering in the desert for 40 years at this point. At least an entire generation, possibly two or more, that knew no other life than camp life. They should have been familiar with this by then. Other rules are presented such as slaves who escape from other nations will be allowed to live freely among the Israelites. Interest cannot be charged among Israelites, but they were free to charge non-Israelites interest. Then a law that came to haunt Jephthah during the period of the judges, and that I covered in the last episode. If you make a vow to the Lord your God, do not postpone fulfilling it. For the Lord your God will surely require it of you, and you will incur guilt. But if you refrain from vowing, you will incur no guilt. Whatever your lips utter, you must diligently perform. 
just as you have freely vowed to the Lord your God with your own mouth. Then a couple of rules that surely seem out of place in our modern culture, but probably made more sense then. If you go into your neighbor's vineyard, you may eat your fill of grapes, as many as you wish, but you shall not put any in a container. If you go into your neighbor's standing grain, you may pluck the ears with your hand, but you shall not put a sickle to your neighbor's standing grain. And that's it for chapter 23. No new things to cover. 24 begins with another rule concerning marriage and divorce. Essentially, if a man divorces his wife and she remarries, husband number one cannot remarry her, even if her second husband dies. In the rest of the chapter are more miscellaneous rules and regs. Newly married men are exempt from military service for a year. Millstones cannot be used as collateral for a loan. Neither can a widow's clothes. Kidnapping an Israelite is a capital offense. Guard against leprosy. Parents cannot be held responsible for the crimes of their children. The same goes for the kids of people who commit crimes. And many more. But still, no new people, places, or things. Moving along. 25 continues with the rules. When you hear there were 600 plus rules in the Old Testament, this is where you can find many of them. The loser in a lawsuit may be flogged up to 40 lashes at the discretion of the judge. Don't muzzle an ox treading grain. If a man's married brother dies without a son, he's to marry his brother's widow. If she then bears a boy, that son is to be named for the dead brother to keep that name alive in Israel. But what if the brother doesn't want to marry her? Then it gets real. His brother's widow shall go up to the elders at the gate and say, My husband's brother refuses to perpetuate his brother's name in Israel. He will not perform the duty of a husband's brother to me. Then the elders of his town shall summon him and speak to him. If he persists, saying, I have no desire to marry her. Then his brother's wife shall go up to him in the presence of the elders, pull his sandal off his foot, spit in his face, and declare, This is what is done to the man who does not build up his brother's house. Throughout Israel, his family shall be known as the house of him whose sandal was pulled off. And to me, that seems like a really strange punishment. Yet another instance where the cultural context is lost to the passage of time. From here, it gets even stranger. If men get into a fight with another, and the wife of one intervenes to rescue her husband from the grip of his opponent by reaching out and seizing his, um, man parts, you shall cut off her hand. Show no pity. And there were more. Be fair in your trade dealings weighing things accurately. More specifically, it reads, You shall not have in your bag two kinds of weights, large and small. You shall not have in your house two kinds of measures, large and small. You shall have only a full and honest weight. You shall have only a full and honest measure. This speaks to the lack of standardization in weights and measures, something that was likely centuries away. The chapter wraps up with a bit of a historical reference. 
Remember what Amalek did to you on your journey out of Egypt, how he attacked you on the way, when you were faint and weary, and struck down all who lagged behind you. He did not fear God. Therefore, when the Lord your God has given you rest from all your enemies on every hand, in the land that the Lord your God has given you as an inheritance to possess, you shall blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. Do not forget. I cover the Amalekites in chapter 3, episode 71, released a year and a half ago in March 2019. So, just a quick refresher. In Exodus 17, we're told that Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. Moses said to Joshua, Choose some men for us and go out, fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek, while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed, and whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. You're probably remembering this now. After their victory, God tells Moses to write this as a reminder in a book and recite it in the hearing of Joshua. I will utterly blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. Some think this written record may have been what became known as the Book of the Wars of the Lord, referenced in Numbers 21, and completely lost to history. According to the Old Testament, the Amalekites lived in the Negev region, though no one group has been identified in the outside record as being Amalekites. They are thought to have been nomadic, or at least semi-nomadic, probably herders. They were not only mentioned in Exodus, but all throughout the Old Testament, and always as an enemy to Israel, with one even telling David that he killed King Saul. David had him summarily executed. Circling back to the 613 or so laws for the Israelites, there were three in total that mentioned the Amalekites, and they all were at the end of chapter 25. Rule 598 is to remember what Amalek did to the Israelites. 599 is to wipe out the descendants of Amalek. And 600 is not to forget Amalek's atrocities and ambush on the journey from Egypt in the desert. All very similar in their intent. There are arguments about what these really mean. Can an individual Israelite kill an Amalekite? Are only the leader of the nation when acting on its behalf? Does it even allow the killing of Amalekites or simply their deportation? There's much debate over the ancient interpretation, but no debate over the modern. Killing Amalekites is not allowed. Not that anyone even knows who they are anymore. Their name has been blotted out. And that's it for chapter 25. No new people, places, or things to cover. Moving on to Deuteronomy 26, which begins with reiteration of the first fruits and tithes, with very specific instructions on the script to follow, down to the words to recite. A recitation that begins with, A wandering Aramean was my ancestor. He went down into Egypt and lived there as an alien few in numbers, and there he became a great nation, mighty and populous. 
This prayer continues for over 100 more words. In the next paragraph, there's another 125-word prayer to recite for the agricultural tithe due every three years. Both of these, in this era, when the vast majority of the population was illiterate, of course meaning they couldn't just read it, but had to commit the text to memory. The chapter wraps up with a summary of the transactional deal between God and His chosen people. This very day, the Lord your God is commanding you to observe these statutes and ordinances. So, observe them diligently with all your heart and with all your soul. Today you have obtained the Lord's agreement to be your God and for you to walk in His ways, to keep His statutes, His commandments, and His ordinances, and to obey Him. Today the Lord has obtained your agreement to be His treasured people, as He promised you, and to keep His commandments, for Him to set you high above all nations that He has made, in praise and in fame and in honor, and for you to be a people holy to the Lord your God, as He promised. We now know how all of this turned out. And that's a wrap on chapter 26. And again, nothing new to dive into. 27 has Moses telling the people what they are to do as soon as they cross the Jordan, specifically to set up stones on Mount Ebel, cover the stones with plaster, and on them inscribe all of the laws, presumably all 613. He then divides up the tribes, telling half to ascend Ebel and the other half Jerazim. At the end of the chapter, he gives them the exact curses to be pronounced on Ebel. I covered all of these in depth a few episodes ago, in chapter 6, episode 34. And that's the chapter. Chapter 28 has Moses telling the people how they will be blessed if they live up to their end of the bargain. These two were covered in the episode on the Mounts Ebel and Jerazim. The blessings take up about the first quarter of the chapter. The remainder of the chapter is chock full of warnings telling the Israelites what will happen if they're disobedient. I was, at first, tempted to say it was like Moses knew what would happen over the hundreds of years that followed. But he didn't need to. He had been leading them for over 40 years and had seen their wayward ways firsthand, many times interceding on their behalf with God. He knew he was leaving, and he was worried. Hence the three speeches and all of the warnings. And in the case of this chapter, he got rather specific. The Lord will afflict you with the boils of Egypt, with ulcers, scurvy, and itch, of which you cannot be healed. The Lord will afflict you with madness, blindness, and confusion of mind. Stolen donkeys, butchered oxen, groping around in the darkness, becoming an object of horror a proverb, and a byword. He was serious. Dead serious. All in all, chapter 28 ends in a rather depressing manner. This was also, almost, the end of his second speech. Most scholars think the first verse of the next chapter, 29, is the last sentence in his speech, which of course means that his third and final speech to the people begins in chapter 29. What's unclear is how much time passed between his second and third speeches. Not a word about that. 
This speech begins with Moses recounting much of the history of the 40 years' desert wandering. Their clothes and sandals didn't wear out. They defeated the kings Sihon and Og, with the land won being given to the two and a half tribes that settled east of the Jordan, the Reubenites, the Gadites, and half the tribe of Manasseh. He then begins where he left off in his last speech, with warnings of all they will face if they turn their faces away from God, even hearkening back to the destruction that hit Sodom and Gomorrah, along with Adma and Zeboim. I covered Sodom and Gomorrah in December 2016, in Chapter 2, Episode 31. I knew I had covered those two cities. What didn't ring a bell were the other two, Adma and Zeboim. So, I dug up the written scripts from then. That was almost four years ago, and since then, I've switched laptops. Not to mention that the audio files, especially in their raw form, take up far more than expected hard drive space. So, I archive all of it on a couple external hard drives. Long story short, it took a while to find those scripts. But I did, and much to my surprise, I didn't cover those two cities then. And this is the last time they're mentioned in the Old Testament, save an allegorical reference in the book of Hosea. All of that being said, now's the time. Not much is known about either, so this should only take a minute. Both Adma and Zeboim were counted with the other three cities of the Vale of Sadim. This place is thought to have been in the Jordan River floodplain between the Sea of Galilee and the Dead Sea. They both were destroyed at the same time as Sodom and Gomorrah. But before that, these five cities, the fifth being Bela, fought against Abraham and Lot. This is when Abraham and his men fought and killed King Cheddar Lyomer. 20th century American archaeologist William F. Albright theorized that Adma was the same city as the one named Adam, mentioned in Joshua 3. Other researchers disagreed and pointed to other places. Nothing definite, though. The city may have merited a mention on the Ebla tablets. These tablets are an archaeological find of over 1,800 clay tablets uncovered in Ebla, Syria. They date to between 2500 and 2250 BC, making the timing of it close enough. And that's it for Adma. Even less is known about Zeboim. It's generally grouped with the other smoked cities and participated in the Battle of Sadim. About the only other thing known comes from Genesis. It had a king, King Shemeber, which is thought to indicate the city was somewhat important, but not enough to make it to any record that survived. And that's it. Back to Deuteronomy and Moses' last speech. The remainder of chapter 29 has Moses continuing to warn the Israelites that if they persist in disobedience, they will be scattered from the God-given land and held as captives by foreign kings. And that's the chapter. 30 has Moses reversing course, telling the people that even after they turn their collective back on God and are hit with all of the curses and punishments that follow, he will not ignore their pleas. He tells them to return to the Lord your God, and you and your children obey him with all of your heart and with all of your soul, 
just as I am commanding you today, then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have compassion on you, gathering you again from all the peoples among whom the Lord your God has scattered you. All throughout the chapter, Moses is laying out the choice, choose God and live, turn away and you will be punished. The choice is theirs. Overall, nothing new is introduced, which gets me to chapter 31. In the very beginning of this chapter, Moses finally tells the people that he will not be going with them across the Jordan, because God has told him so. He's 120 years old and, in his words, no longer able to get about, but they shouldn't worry because God is still with them. It's at this point that he also tells them that Joshua is picking up the leadership reins and will be the first to cross the river. He then speaks to Joshua, presumably alone, telling him not to worry either, to be bold and strong. Moses then wrote the law down and gave it to the Levitical priests. They were instructed to place it in the Ark of the Covenant, removing it every seven years during the Festival of Booths and reading it to the people. At this point, God speaks to Moses. Your time to die is near. Call Joshua and present yourselves in the tent of meeting so that I may commission him. Moses and Joshua do as they are told. When they arrive, God addresses the pair, once again telling Moses that he's about to die. In this case, he's a little more euphemistic. Soon, you will lie down with your ancestors. Then, this people will begin to prostitute themselves to the foreign gods in their midst, the gods of the land into which they are going. They will forsake me, breaking my covenant that I have made with them. God goes on to tell Moses and Joshua what the people's punishment will be, essentially a condensed version of what Moses told the people in his last speech. God then tells Moses to write down a song and teach it to the people. And I'm going to pause here for a second. With an illiterate population, one of the more accurate and easiest ways to get them to remember something is with a song. Neuroscientists posit that music, and therefore songs, reside in a different part of the brain from regular speech, and those memories tend to get locked away longer. Back to Deuteronomy. Moses writes down the song, and it's revealed in chapter 32. I'm not going to recite the whole thing, as it's close to 1,000 words. Just know that it's essentially a memory device for the warnings and blessings that Moses has been hammering into the people. The constant theme of be true to God, and he will be true to you. But turn away, and you're on your own. And that has never gone well for the Israelites. Moses recites the words to the people telling them to learn it and teach it to their children, that their lives depend on it. Later that same day, God tells Moses to ascend Mount Nebo, where he will die, telling him that this is all because he and Aaron broke their faith at the waters of Meribah Kadesh in the wilderness of Zen. And on that down note, the chapter ends. Before he does climb the mountain, Moses gives a final blessing to the Israelites, first addressing the people in whole, and then each tribe individually. Except Simeon, no mention whatsoever is made of them. 
And this isn't the only place where they are left out. The general thinking is that they were a relatively insignificant tribe and were frequently commingled with the tribe of Judah. I covered them in depth in Chapter 3, Episode 66, released in February 2019. There's one other thing that stands out in this passage. In the New Revised Standard, there are 15 separate footnotes where the ancient Hebrew source could be translated differently. Most of these do not change the fundamental meaning of the blessing in any significant way. Instead, they tend to point out that Moses was not as literal in his blessing and a bit more figurative. This is seen throughout, so I'll just point out one, the blessing given to the tribe of Asher. Most blessed of the sons be Asher. May he be the favorite of his brothers, and may he dip his foot in oil. Your bars are iron and bronze, and as your days, so is your strength. Chapter 34 is extremely short, with Moses climbing Mount Nebo, which afforded him a view of the promised land. It must have been a clear day, or God cleared the skies for him, as he could see all the way to the Mediterranean, in the passage called the Western Sea. He then dies, with some unnamed persons removing his body and burying it in an unspecified location in the land of Moab. The Israelites then wept for 30 days. We're told that since Moses, there has never been another prophet like him, who God knew face to face. Joshua then takes charge of the people, and that's the book of Deuteronomy, and the end of the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible that I've been covering since May 2016, nearly four and a half years. By my estimate, I've written somewhere around 800,000 words on the subject. To put that in context, that's about 20,000 more words than are found in the entire King James Version of the Bible. I never dreamt it would take this long to cover these books, and it's certainly a testament to how rich the history found in them really is. I'll wrap up the Pentateuch next week with a summary at least as best as I can squeeze in, in 30 minutes or less. You don't want to miss it. Comments and questions can be sent to comments at christianhistorypodcast.com. As always, you can find information about the podcast on the internet at christianhistorypodcast.com. This week, help others to find the podcast by leaving a positive review on iTunes. You can find the Facebook page by searching the phrase Christian History Podcast as three separate words. Once there, be sure to like the page so that it's easier to find later. Finally, if you're enjoying the podcast, subscribe so you get the episodes as soon as they are released and you don't miss out. Thanks for listening and have a great week.